Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here. This marks my last message as an intern, as a speaking intern at Grassroots. Yeah, I was expecting more of Oz, but that, that's okay. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> um, well, it's, uh, it's, yeah, second week of Advent, and uh, it's, the theme is love. Uh, so we'll be lighting these candles during the music, um, so that'll be good. Uh, but I did want to um, share a little bit. Last week, Chris talk, talked about hope, and he tied in the disciplines of prayer and study, and, uh, and how basically as we commit ourselves to prayer and study, we can kind of... <clears throat> Um, uh, develop or enhance hope and, and our understanding of what that means um, in our lives. And so tying this idea of the disciplines to the themes of Advent is kind of where we're going this year. And so I thought I'd do that um, with love. And uh, I'm calling this message Making Gray, or Gray, depending on how you spell it. How many, let's have a vote, how many with an A? Two people, okay, then does that mean everyone else is with an E? Oh, well, 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 well. okay. So making gray is kind of what I uh, called it, and you'll understand, I hope, as we go along. Um, I sat down on Friday night to, uh, to prepare this message, and it was around 10.30 at night. I know I had two weeks to do it, but I usually wait till the weekend of. Um, and, uh, and it was around 10.30 at night, the kids were in bed, I was sitting downstairs by the fireplace. Uh, I was, my computer was on my lap, and I was super comfy. And then in walks my two-year-old, blanket in hand and soothing in his mouth, and he's just the most adorable little kid. And he doesn't say anything. He just opens up the door. He looks at me, and I say, come over here. So Graham walks up to Daddy, and he sits with me. And in that moment, I realized that there was absolutely anything I would do for this kid. If this kid had asked me to get up and get him a drink of water, I wouldn't hesitate. If he said, Daddy, I want to sleep on you for the next eight hours, don't move, I wouldn't have moved. I would have done anything at all for that kid in that moment. And then I thought about earlier on in the week, it was in, uh, I was in Toronto for some, uh, uh, some meetings for work this week, and I was... Uh, Every time I go down to Toronto or the big smoke, it's always an eye-opening experience for me. Um, when you come from Thunder Bay, it's you know, a bit of a small town, and it's whatever, you see the same routine over and over again. So when you go to the, new city, or the big city, it's always kind of exciting. And so uh, I went down, and I, had, uh, I walked. I, took a, a, I walked from uh, Bishop Airport to my hotel, and I, cro- I passed, I mean, thousands of people, I'm sure, but so many of them, uh, or a number of them, sorry, were... were homeless, and um, we're in these very sort of, I guess you could say just defeated states, you know, and, and so they had signs out, and they were asking for some money, or asking for some help in some form, buy me a meal, you know, give me a couple bucks, that kind of thing, and you just, you just look at that stuff, and it kind of st- sticks in your mind, it kind of sears into your conscience. Um, and sometimes I give money, like all of us, sometimes, you know, if we're in those situations, we'll give a few bucks or whatever. I didn't do that this time. Um, and so I just was kind of like left thinking about it. And so the next day or two, I saw a few more folks like that. And again, I just kind of like, eh, interesting. And so I contrasted these two situations, this situation with my son 
Graham, my two-year-old, who I would do absolutely anything for, you know, with these random strangers on the streets of Toronto who I've never met, and who I have this hesitancy to help out. And like I said, sometimes we'll give some money, sometimes we'll help them out or whatever, but often it's just kind of, well, just keep walking. Uh, and it made me think about something. It made me think the, about the categories that I divide people into. And they are generally black and white. And I know that's maybe not the, the, the best way to see the world, but it's, um, it's the, way that I need to use, uh, the way that I need to see the world in, in many ways to kind of make sense of life. And here's what I mean. And what I'm, what I'm about to say is not particularly profound, so um, don't, don't uh, get too worried about this. Um, there are people in the first category, there are people in my life who I intentionally love, who I have a relationship with, people who I get along with quite well, uh, people who maybe I've helped create, in the case of my kids. Uh, these are people who know me, and I know them, and it's all good. These people are people who I would say are generally easier to serve. Like I said, not particularly profound. The second category then are those people who I have less knowledge, or I have less, uh, sorry, let me, oh yeah, it's down here. Those people who I don't know, who I have not met, who, are, who I have met, but maybe we didn't get along so well. Maybe there's resentment between us. Maybe there is some kind of um, whatever issue that's blocking our relationship from building. Um, whatever, they're generally strangers, I've never met them. These people, naturally, I have a harder time to serve. So category one are those people we are more willing to serve because we know them. Category two are those people we don't know, and therefore we have a harder time serving. This is not rocket science. Tell me, let me know, raise your hand if this is kind of how you see the world too. Nobody else sees the world this way. Okay, thank you. One other person can connect with me on this. Um, here's the problem with this kind of simplistic category. Jesus takes these black and these white categories and he blends them. And he makes this gray. Uh-huh. Um, which is a bit frustrating, really, because this is where things start to get sticky. Because, first of all, it's true, in fact, he purposely goes out of his way to communicate how important it is not to differentiate, instructing us to love everyone as our neighbor, um, to treat everyone the same, to serve the least of these, to serve those who we even consider to be our enemies. This is the kind of radical, subversive way that Jesus is calling you and I to live. And this is what he writes in Matthew chapter 5, I want to... Read just the end of chapter 5, verse 40, and so forth, if we can put that on the screen. It says that if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If I love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Now, these are very familiar words of Jesus. Many of us will know them well. Um, in other words, 
Jesus' point is this. If we're only loving and we're only serving those in our midst who love us and serve us back, what good is it? What's different between that and what the rest of the world is doing? Um, so he's saying, you know, sure, that's, that's natural, and, and that's not bad to do that. It's not like you're sinning when you serve and you love your family. Obviously, that's not the case, but that's what the whole world does. And if you're my disciple, if you're going to follow me, I'm actually calling you to go a step further. You're supposed to be loving. You're supposed to be serving and pouring yourself into everyone. You're not supposed to distinguish between those I know and love and those who are my strangers. It's just one big mess of people we are to love and to serve. So he asks us to take this category of black, that, that category of the familiar, and to take this category of white, this category of the unfamiliar, um, where we are not naturally inclined to serve, and then to just mix it all together without favoritism, without um, regard to labels or anything, and just say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to love on you. I'm going to serve you uh, in the same way that I'm going to serve my lifelong friend or my spouse or whatever. Um, so you wonder, okay, friend? Yeah, serve them. Enemy? Yeah, Jesus is saying, serve them. That awkward guy in the cubicle next to you who sings Alicia Keys all morning? Yeah, serve him, right? Your church? Serve them. Your family? Yeah, serve them. Um, you know, people who don't get along with you because they disagree with what you believe? Yeah, serve them too. It doesn't matter. There are no labels in this calling that Jesus gives on us. We're going to make gray all the categories of blacks and whites that we have. Um, so if we were even more of a hipster, artsy-fartsy church, what I would do at this point would be to maybe ask uh, Angela or some other artsy person in the room to come up here with an easel and a glob of white on one side and a glob of black on the other side and just paint this amazing mural of different shades of gray to kind of like you know, make a more visceral experience of what I'm trying to communicate this morning. But we're not quite at that level of hipster artsy-fartsiness, so we'll just kind of just deal with that graphic that I put up earlier, if that's all right. Um, that one, there. Hopefully you can use your imaginations. <laughs> so I want to share this morning just one example from Scripture of how Jesus does this so well. And the reality is all of the Gospels, all the story of Jesus and his ministry really are... Um, his way of communicating how we are to make this, these categories of black and white become gray, where we are not to show favoritism in how we serve and how we go out there in the world and, and love everyone else and how we serve them. That's his whole point. But there are a few stories that maybe stand out more than others, and one that maybe you wouldn't even think of as a demonstration of that, but it really stood out to me this week as I was reading it. And it's a very classic story. It's taken out of the Gospel of John. It's the only Gospel uh, that records this story. It's the story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. And I want to look at this um, quickly, hopefully, and not go way over time this morning. Um, so if we can begin, we're going to read this uh, first 12 verses, and then we'll discuss it. So John chapter 13, verse 1, if you want to follow along on, uh, your, in your Bibles or on your iPhones or on your iPads or on your iPods or in the screen up front. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
So first of all, listen to that. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all, good, all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Notice this, Jesus, verse 10, Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet, their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Now, the, interestingly, I read this story in my uh, kids' children's Bible the other morning or the other night when I was uh, doing devotions with them. And I want to read you their version. Now, this is, comes from um, the Jesus Storybook Bible. And we really like this Bible. It's great. It's a very loose kind of paraphrase of scripture, but it communicates the truths of, of um, the Bible quite well. And so this is, what, um, this is what this version says. Bear with me. Jesus and his friends were having the Passover meal together in an upstairs room, but Jesus' friends were arguing. What about? They were arguing about stinky feet. Stinky feet? Yes, that's right. Stinky feet. Now, like I said, it's a bit of a paraphrase. It's not direct translation from the Greek. Um, but anyway, this was... Now, the thing about feet back then was that people didn't wear shoes. They only wore sandals, which might not sound unusual, except that the streets in those days were dirty. And I don't mean just dirt, dusty dirty, I mean really stinky dirty. With all those cows and horses everywhere, you can imagine the stuff on the street that ended up on their feet. So anyway, someone had to wash away the dirt, but it was a dreadful job. Who on earth would ever dream of volunteering to do it? Only the lowliest servant. I'm not the servant, Peter said. Nor am I, said Matthew. Quietly, Jesus got up from the table. He took off his robe, picked up a basin of water, knelt down, and started to wash his friend's feet. I like that version. Um, so, what does, so what Jesus does in this act of service is a very real, there's a very real, there's a very icky part to it. It's not just some symbolic gesture that he's doing to demonstrate to you and I uh, how we are to serve. He's actually doing something that's nasty. Um, you know, there's dust, there's grime, there's donkey poop, there's horse poop, there's cow poop, and probably maybe goat poop. Probably, that was probably it. But that's that enough in the streets of Jerusalem today. And this is on the people's feet, on the disciples' feet. So he's washing that. And it's not a fun job that everyone's dying to do. But Jesus does it. And the point is that it's not just some symbolic gesture. It's actually serving. It's, it's not pleasant. It's not... Like I said, something that we're opting to do because of, our, of who we think we are. We're so important. Let's get down and, and wash someone's feet. That's not what's going on here. But it was something that was necessary. And Jesus shows his disciples and he shows us what it means to actually serve. That it, it is a super lowly job. And sometimes it involves animal poop. And sometimes it involves grime and dirt and getting gross. Uh, but if love is directing us, that we then have the ability to carry through that act of service with a smile. 
But here's where I really want to focus. Verse 11 and 12 says, For he knew who was going to betray him. This is the original NIV version, not the crazy paraphrase. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he'd said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Interesting. So what's key is not necessarily what the scriptures are saying in this passage, but more what the scriptures aren't saying. Um, Jesus knows who is going to betray him. And you can bet that as he's going through the course of the evening, washing the disciples' feet, feet, he is thinking about what is about to happen with Judas. He's maybe thinking about um, the last couple of years of ministry together with Judas. And, and when we think of Judas, we always think of him as this like, sneaky, creepy guy. Right? All the pictures show him, the guy in the corner with this like, menacing look on his face. But probably he was, a, he was a, just like the rest of them, for the most part. He got along, he told stories, told jokes. He had a good friendship with Jesus. And I think that's important for us to understand. Um, it, yeah, there was this moment, for sure. But for the most part, maybe Judas wasn't this shifty. Well, yeah, there was evidence that he was shifty all the way through. But he was also chosen by Jesus for a reason. And so Jesus probably saw him as a friend, an actual friend. And now he's thinking about this friend betraying him giving him up for a few pieces of silver. And so, to me, that that stands out because the scriptures say that, um, in verse 12, that Jesus washes their feet. He washes all of their feet. He washes Simon Peter's feet. He washes Thomas's feet. He washes John, the disciple whom he loved. And he washes Judas, the guy who in a few minutes is about to completely betray him for a few pieces of silver. His long lost, or his friend, who is now going to turn his back and give him in. And Jesus doesn't distinguish between the two. He doesn't have category white over here with his friends who he is more eager to serve, with category black over here with his enemies, who he is not too eager to serve. He doesn't do that. He serves, he washes, he scrubs the feet of every disciple. And so Jesus is in this situation where he is willing to, um, to just give of himself regardless of the past, regardless of the present, or regardless of the future of these, of these men. And he knows that. I mean, he's God. But he's, he's in that moment saying, listen, I'm going to give of myself and serve without distinction. He blends the black and the white, and he makes a beautiful gray. Okay, great. So love others, serve others. Don't differentiate between who's who. Just do it to everyone. That's, that's great. That sounds like every message we've ever heard in church. So then how do we get from this cliche of, um, you know, love and serve everyone without showing favoritism to uh, this action that's going to cause transformation in our lives and in the world around us? How do we get from that? Well, I've got two, dis- two suggestions um, that I need to follow as much as anyone. The first one is to discipline ourselves to love first. Last week, Chris shared about hope and how um, 
that hope comes alive when we discipline ourselves in the practice of prayer and study. And, and I think the truth is that if there's anything worth attaining, attaining for the kingdom of God, anything that is worth pursuing, that is worthy of our time and our attention, and that will actually bring about transformation in this world, it will take commitment. It will take discipline. It will take time and effort and continual work. And so the first area is to discipline ourselves to love others first. Now, love comes naturally towards some people. All of us have uh, those people in our lives who we don't really struggle in loving. Uh, Our children, you know, those in the first category, our our wives, our spouses. Um, But that's not always the case. Um, For a lot of people out there in our world, in our world, we, we are quick to find their faults, to quick to find um, excuses for, for not connecting with them, for not serving. Um, and so that is just a reality we have to deal with. Um, and when we come up with these excuses and these justifications, then uh, it ends up that we can't love them. And when we don't love them, we don't serve them. And so I, I don't have the corner on this one. I, I definitely struggle. Those who know me know me. Um, as a guy who's quite quick to be critical of people and quite quick to be cynical um, and, and to not default to a posture of love toward others. But there have been moments in my life where that's not, that, that hasn't been completely true. I was uh, a couple months ago, and I think I maybe even told this story a long time ago, um, but I was in, at the complex, and uh, we were, I was getting changed. Uh, I had a squash game or something, and there were the teenagers in the next aisle over and there's a number of people in the complex, or in the change room at the time. Um, and so these teenagers were just carrying on in, I guess, juvenile teenage ways. Um, they were, you know, saying inappropriate things, and uh, they were being kind of annoying. And it wasn't just me they were annoying. They were annoying everyone in the room. Um, and so I... I just, I sat there and I was like getting, getting ready and stuff. And then I, I thought this realization came into my head. God loves those kids. And those kids are loved by their parents as much as you love your parents. I, I know that sounds silly. And I was like, that's true. They are. God does love them. He sees their intrinsic value and their worth, and he is able to look past all the junk they're saying because he sees their value. He knows who they are and what they're worth and and how much they are loved. And their parents love them. And I thought about how much I love my kids, and I thought, it's crazy that there are people out there who love these kids as much as I love my kids. It made me like, wow. And so that moment, that kind of simple realization caused me to just not have this attitude of like anger and frustration with them. And I was able to, in a sense, almost have pity on them for um, being the way they are because they're trying to impress each other or whatever. They have some kind of status that they need to achieve with, within, within that you know, sphere of friendship there. Uh, and so they're seeking to do that because they need self-worth and they need all these things. Anyway, the point is, I wasn't angry with them. I actually, dare say, I loved those teenagers in this other aisle. And I'm pretty sure everyone in the room would have been quite happy if I'd gone and slapped them upside the head. But I didn't. 
Um, I, instead, I just kind of carried on my way. I didn't say anything to them. I didn't, uh, you know, I probably could have gone and said something to them to encourage them to behave or whatever. Um, I didn't. It, it, the, mo- the point of it is just that there's this moment where instead of defaulting to a posture of dismissal and just like uh, annoyance with these guys, I just looked at them and I said, you are loved by God. That's pretty cool. You are loved by your parents. You're loved by other people in this world. They, they think a lot of you. And that helps me to see you as being valuable and, and as being worthy of being loved. And so, um, I, I, yeah, in, in that regard, I was able to love those individuals, those teens. And I'm telling you that because it's not something that comes naturally to me. It doesn't happen a lot. But man, imagine what our lives would be like if we could actually go around and default to a posture of love toward the other, toward the person we don't know, toward the person that might annoy us, the the person who might be getting under our skin for whatever reason. If we could actually, instead of starting with the uh, the, starting with the, the perspective that this guy is annoying me and therefore inconveniencing me, if we could actually start with, man, this person's loved by God and I can love this person too, how would that change our world? How would that change our lives and, and the environments that we are in? It'd be profound. So the first, um, the first step then is to discipline ourselves, to love first. But then the second is to discipline ourselves to serve first. And because it's not always easy to love first. Um, we're human, we're fickle, and we have expectations of others that inevitably uh, they don't measure up to. Uh, and so sometimes we just need to buckle down and commit to serving. And then love follows through after. Um, I mentioned in the past, several times probably by now, uh, this process called Storyline that my wife and I and another couple have gone through in the last year. And this is um, uh, this workbook that we go through that, that uh, the, the purpose is to kind of help live a better story with your life. And uh, it's based on the principles of Viktor Frankl's kind of narrative theory. Has anyone read or heard of Viktor Frankl? A few of us? Cool. Um, and so... It's a really cool process, and, and so the point is you, if you set yourself a goal in life. What do you want to become in life? You want to, you know, whatever it is, um, and then you basically kind of start writing down, okay, what are the things that are going to um, get me to that goal? What are the steps I need to take to get me to that goal? And then what are the conflicts I'm going to take? or the conflicts I'm going to face? What are the opposition that's going to be there in my way that's going to hold me back from, from reaching my goal? And, and so you kind of go through that. But the critical part, like the most important part of this, uh, or arguably the most important part, is this, this one thing, uh, this one aspect of the storyline process called the inciting incident. So that any time you have um, a goal in your life, you need to create an inciting incident. Now, an inciting incident is that thing in your life that's going to get you off the couch and get working toward achieving that goal. So for instance, if, um, if you wanted to um, get in shape, your goal was to get in shape, and uh, you're thinking, you know, I want to get in shape, that's my goal, I'm going to just start running. Well, okay, that's great, but what is it that's going to get you off the couch to start exercising regularly, commit yourself to it. So you might say my inciting incident is to sign up for a marathon in the fall. So I'm going to sign up for a marathon in the fall. Then that means between now 
and then I have all this time to commit myself to exercise. And that would be your inciting incident. It's the thing that commits you to that action so that now you're, gone, you're, you're committed to it. You're going to do it. And so every goal we have in our storyline, in our, in our stories is, in life, should have an inciting incident. What is it that's going to get you off the couch to get working toward um, whatever it is, the goal that you're set, you're set, you've set out for yourself? So um, that was the process. And um, when we're talking about serving then, there may be uh, a hesitancy that you have. You know, that, ah... I don't want to do that. It's not for me. Um, or you come up with the old, I don't have enough time in my week to commit to this. Or, uh, you know, for me, it's like, I don't know. I've had a lot of excuses. I won't, I won't share them all right now. But something like, oh, it's not fair to Rhonda to leave her throughout the week, you know, with the kids. I mean, I'm gone all day. It's not fair to leave her and just go do something else. Or, or um, the kids need me, or whatever. We can come up with a thousand excuses. And so the point is, okay, see something that you want, that, that you believe you should get involved with, and then create an inciting incident that's going to get you there. Something that's going to cause you to prioritize your life in such a way that you can actually fit those, or that action, that, that act of serving into your, your, your weekly routine. Um, so on that note, here's, here's my challenge to you this year at Advent and as, and as we move into 2014. Step up and serve somewhere if you're not already. If you are able, if you are capable, if at all possible, let me encourage you to create an inciting incident. Um, something that is going to force you to get up and to move forward. Something that is going to force you toward giving of yourself, of your resources, of your time, of your life. Something that's going to cost you something. That um, will require sacrifice. Just, just sign up for it. That's the incident. That's the inciting incident right there. Sign up. Because once you sign up for something, that's it. You're like saying, okay, I'm done. So send Joel an email and say, Joel, I heard this incredible message by Steve the other day. It was so inspiring. But here's what I wanted to say, Joel. I'm willing and I want you to find a place for me to volunteer at Grassroots Church because this is a great place to start. We don't have to be, I mean, I would encourage us to do something in the community, but if we're not super comfortable with that, start right here. We know that Grassroots Church is a church that would be a dismal failure of a ministry if it weren't for the volunteers at this place. Do we agree? Do you agree? Right. And so if you're not involved in some capacity here, let me encourage you to, to try to just drop, drop, drop Joel an email and, and begin that. Begin that journey. It will be worth it. Um, again, something I struggle with as well. And, and I, a couple months ago, had realized that almost all the things in my weekly routine were focused, had some sort of self-serving end. That either it, it, it helped me directly or it helped you know, the people in that first category, that, that black category, people who I love, people who I knew, my family. So if it helped me in that regard, then I maybe was doing it. But I wasn't doing anything beyond that category. And a buddy of mine called me on this, and he said, um, or he basically stepped up and did something with his, and that inspired me. And I said, you know what? I should be doing something like that. So my inciting incident then was to email this organization in town and say, listen, I'd like to be a volunteer. And so starting in January, I'll be volunteering once a week, I think, or once every other week to work with this organization. It is stretching me way beyond my comfort zone. It is something that I've not done before. 
But I'm excited. Every day that I get closer to that, I get excited about it because I'm like, yeah, this is going to grow me in so many different ways. It's going to cause me to get beyond my boundaries, beyond my comfort zone, and, and it's going sac- to require sacrifice, and it's going to require time, and it's going to be a sacrifice on Rhonda because that means she's going to be home one night a week without me, uh, with the kids. And, you know, like, it's going to affect everything in my life. But I'm hoping and praying that this is going to be a rewarding experience for me and for those that I minister through it. And so let me encourage you to do something similar. It doesn't have to be, you know, a weekly thing or whatever, but some way, some capacity. If you're having a hard time loving first, then just commit to serving. Because I think the love will probably come as we commit to it. Yeah. And I think that's about all I wanted to say this morning. So let's pray. And then... um, and then we'll have a bit of a break, and then we'll have some music. Father, um, thank you for your son's example of loving all of us, of not picking favorites, of not only caring for those who he was friends with or who he knew intimately, but Lord, he gave of himself to everyone without showing favoritism, and he made this beautiful gray, and he inspires us, he taught us, he left an example, excuse me, left an example for us to do the same. And I pray, God, that this Advent, we would be challenged to do do something that is going to stretch us beyond our own comfort and our own little worlds. Help us to step outside of that and to serve where we can because we love you. And help us to love our neighbor, whoever that neighbor may be. Help us to love them and to develop a posture of service toward them so that we can serve others the way that Jesus served his disciples without showing favoritism, without caring about who they were, just giving of himself to them. Thank you, Father, for this time together. I pray that you'd inspire and encourage us throughout this week. In your son's name, amen. Well, thank you very much.